Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network Jewish Studies channel. I am your host, Rora Arusi, Senior Director of the ASF Institute of Jewish Experience at the American Sephardi Federation. We try to see beyond the Ashkenazi world and glimpse into the greater Jewish mosaic. Today, we're really delighted to speak with Professor Aviva Ben-Ur. Professor Ben-Ur is a historian specializing in Atlantic Jewish history, slavery studies, and the Ottoman diaspora. She is the author of Remnant, Remnant Stones, the Jewish Cemeteries and Synagogues of Suriname, Essays by Hebrew Union College Press, and Remnant Stones, the Jewish Cemeteries of Suriname, Epitaphs, also by Hebrew Union College Press, among others. Today, we are going to be speaking about her book, Jewish Autonomy in a Slave Society, Suriname in the Atlantic World, 1651 to 1825. That's out by University of Pennsylvania Press 2020. And we're excited to speak. So welcome, Aviva. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for the invitation. And it's lovely to be here. So let's start. I just told a bit about you, but tell us a little bit about your work and in general, where your areas of research and a little bit about yourself as well. Yes, of course. So all the way through, I've trained as a Jewish historian. And when I was a, I was about to graduate and receive my PhD, a young architect from New York approached me at a Jewish studies conference and asked if I wouldn't be interested in coming to document some cemeteries in the Republic of Suriname, a former Dutch colony. And some advice I had received or I was about to receive at my graduation ceremony from Brandeis University was after getting your PhD, do do something incredibly different that some people might call crazy. Just go for it. So that's exactly what I did. And I signed on to the project. And I went to Suriname a total of three times with her and without her afterwards, documenting these Jewish cemeteries in the midst of a rainforest. And some of them were also in the capital city of Paramaribo in Suriname. So that that sparked my interest in Suriname. And before that, I had specialized in the Ladino-speaking Jews of the former Ottoman Empire who immigrated to the United States. So I don't know how many people listening, how many of our listeners know that Suriname actually had a pretty vibrant uh, Jewish community. And you actually, uh, you actually, I'm quoting now, uh, uh, that the the history of Suriname's Jews were a cons- a constitutive force in shaping the Atlantic world. Can you explain that a little bit? It's it's a pretty strong statement. (laughs) Yes, of course. Well, first of all, we can speak about numbers. So the, the Jewish communities in the Americas were very small, relatively speaking. But the one that formed in Suriname starting in the 1650s became the largest in the entire Americas. So by sheer numbers, it was clearly extremely important, but organizationally, it was also very important. It had a high degree of autonomy, that is virtual self-rule. And 
And by constitutive, this is a fancy academic world, meaning that that, that Jews were not of, um, they were not present in society and contributing to it or impacting it, but rather they were a part of it. You know, they constituted part of society. It was suggested to me, the, the term actually by a reviewer. And so I had to look up the, you know, the background to the term. And it is, you know, it is a very trendy term to argue that to, it is a way to move away for the, from the apologetic model that says, oh, we have to study this group because they were very influential. They were impactful. They made a difference. But this is apologia. We should study this group because they were a part of colonial society and we need to understand colonial society as a whole. Um, so in my book, I, I, tried, I tried not to, it was a very kind of a conflicted moment for me because I, I wanted to look at Jews as a force apart. And in many ways, they were a force apart. The autonomy that they negotiated for beginning in the 1650s was unparalleled in the colony. No white people had the number of privileges that, that the Jews fought for. So, and of course they spoke a different language. They were of Iberian origin. So they spoke primarily Portuguese, but also Spanish. They eventually learned the Creole language known as Surinam-Dongo, which is the national language, one of the two national languages of the Republic of Suriname. And, and in that sense, they were, they were actually very integrated into the colony as a whole. I argue in my book that the institution of slavery had a very important function in integrating Jews into broader societies so that when you study the history of Suriname, you can't avoid Jewish history. This is actually an argument first made by David Nassi in the 18th century. He was a, a philosopher, a physician, a pharmacist. He was a jack of all trades, but a, renaissance, a real Renaissance man with a classical education. And he wrote a history of Suriname and in this history, he argues you can't do the history of Suriname without looking at the Jewish people. And I think that there's also something you talked about, the slavery as being part of the community. It's they actually became almost very much integrated with each other. And can you talk a little bit about the multiculturalism that was there? I'm, just before you do, I'm going to say the first person I met from Suriname was actually a descendant of slaves with a mixed black, Portuguese and Chinese heritage. And he himself was a practicing Jew. Um, coming back to it afterwards, he was involved in the Snoga in uh, Amsterdam. And I just found it fascinating that he was a Jew by birth and yet he, a lot of them went to church and to synagogue. Um, so now you should be speaking about this, not me. So if you could expand a little. Your example is, is very wonderful. And that ecumenicism that you have just described is very typical of Suriname. It's also more broadly speaking, typical of the Caribbean. So Suriname, like many parts of the Caribbean, was and is a multicultural society. It, it is the home of major indigenous tribes, including Arawak and Carib Indians. Uh, thereafter came Europeans and also forced migrants from West Africa. And after that, as your friend suggested, came indentured servants from Asia, from South Asia, and from Southeast Asia in place of slavery. In addition, in addition to that, you had Javanese who were also indentured servants. And later on, Middle Eastern, modern Middle Eastern people, typically Christian and Muslims. 
And so the, sometimes Suriname is known as the land of seven peoples, but actually that disguises the much more intense diversity of the country. There are many, many cultural and linguistic groups. And in my book, I argue that slavery created a force of foraging of the groups that, that, and this has to do a lot with the theory of slavery, but it caused a melding of these cultures and these peoples and not, not in the perhaps um, aspirational way that modern day societies strive to achieve multiculturalism, but in a framework of, as I argue in my book, a framework of forced sex and in slavery, the theory tells us since antiquity, both the labor and the body of the slave is owned, which means that the male owner, the master of the slave, has complete right to sexual access to his female girls and women. And if you look carefully at the archives, this is exactly what is happening. Enslaved women, women are giving birth to multiple children. Uh, one scholar calls this um, rape or, or what passed for consensual relations in a slave society, which is a very nice way to put it, I think. And some of these children were selectively converted to Judaism. That conversion was initiated supposedly by the master, by the white Jewish master. But in fact, if you read between the lines, probably many enslaved women were also embracing Judaism of their own accord, either as a means to better their position and the position of their child or for genuine spiritual reasons and, and love of the religion and probably a combination of both. And then those offspring then many of them became part of the Jewish people. Yeah, so what's interesting uh, about the Jewish community of Suriname is that they, they created their own halakha, really, their own Jewish law. It, it wasn't strictly speaking a rabbinical law, but it was under the ages of rabbinical teachers. So they, they practiced formal conversion to, to Judaism of enslaved Africans. We know that from Wills, Wills discuss, oh yes, so-and-so slave child that I own was, was brought up in the Jewish religion from birth and was converted by the lirar, to use the, to use the Dutch word, mm -hmm. which means a teacher, but he really meant a rabbinical teacher, and was circumcised according to Jewish law. We also have prayer books that include conversion prayers when a master is converting his slave to Judaism. And interestingly enough, that, that conversion ceremony is based on the practices that, that were still kept from, from temple antiqu antiquity when the Jews still had their temple in Jerusalem. That is what the, the kind of um, the byword says in the prayer book. Uh, when the temple was still standing, this is how we also converted slaves to Judaism. So in a sense, the conversion was very conservative, very rabbinical, but in another sense, it was a breakaway because these were patriarchs. These were males, mm -hmm. Jewish masters, who were claiming that their children born to African non-Jewish women were Jews, merited being Jews, and, and even though this was a, a, a conversion, it was really a reflection of patriarchal transmission, transmission of Jew Jewishness through the patriarchal line. Because if you, if you think about it, the, it was really the, the Jewish women who, who could have, have done this, who could have created a, a, a society of Jews who had slave origins. But the, the Jewish women in the colony 
their, their task was to preserve sexual purity so that if they ever had sexual relations with people of African descent, who most of whom were enslaved, and they did, there is signs that they did, they would be immediately expelled from the colony. And that, that did happen on record. So just as background, I should say that, that Suriname was a slave society par excellence, meaning that the economy was heavily based on slavery. This was a predominantly a sugar colony. A tropical agriculture was practiced, not only sugar, but, but also other crops like, like cotton and cocoa. But sugar was really the mainstay for most of the decades. And without slavery, the entire economy would have collapsed. Suriname was an extreme form of a slave society because upwards of 90% of the residents were both enslaved and of African origin. So that meant that the white people in the colony, they, they represented perhaps 5% of the total residents. So, and Jews among them, Jews among them were, were out were overrepresented because from one third to two thirds of the white population was Jewish, depending on the time period. And, and this is unprecedented and unparalleled. Only in Curaçao do you come close, where one third of the white population was also Jewish. It's, so you, you talked about the colony and in reading the book, uh, can you explain what that means, the colony? Because it like, can you draw us a picture maybe obviously orally, of what the Jewish community looked like in the 1700s. You talked about Paramaribo, but that's not necessarily where they were all living. Can you? Yes, so so a a colony, of course, uh, refers to, in this case, a European power extending its reach of influence and subjugating a foreign land, subjugating its people and also its natural resources. So in this case, the English first colonized Suriname in 1651, and the country is named after a flower that grew along the shores of the Suriname River called the Suriname flower. It's an indigenous name, actually. Then, yeah, that's very pretty. Then in 1667, the Dutch, in a battle against England, and uh, and it was England by that time, not not yet Britain. They they conquered, and it became a Dutch colony, and Suriname remained a Dutch colony virtually without interruption until until its independence in 1975. Between 1799 and 1815, off and on, it once again became this time a British colony. But for most of its history, it for most of its colonial history, I should say, it was Dutch. And it was very difficult for the Dutch to convince Europeans, Dutch Europeans, to migrate. And, and help colonize this new land, partly because there were a lot of jobs open to, to Dutch Christians, and the economy in the 17th, 18th century was doing fairly well. So the people that they could convince to colonize were actually Jews, because Jews were barred from the four main areas of trade in what became the Netherlands, let's just call it the Dutch Republic, they could not serve in industry, in agriculture, for example, in the military, by and large. And they could, however, seek their fortunes abroad. And this is actually one great impetus for the founding of Suriname's Jewish community. Contrary to the popular view, these Jews were not refugees. They had been living in the Dutch Republic for 
sometimes decades, even if they had been born in the Iberian Peninsula as Christians and had experienced religious and racial persecution in the Iberian Peninsula, they were not refugees in the Dutch Republic who were refugees trying to make it their way to Suriname. They had settled in the Dutch Republic. They had formed a fledgling community there, but it was getting overcrowded. So they needed to find new places for, for settlement. And not only that, but there were the, the Khmelnytsky massacres of, the, of 1648 with many Eastern European Ashkenazi refugees coming in and settling in Amsterdam. So for that reason too, there was a, a, a very strong need to find new areas of settlement, new economic opportunities. The community was overburdened with, with charitable causes. It simply could not feed the local Jewish population. So Suriname offered a, a, a very promising opportunity for the leaders and also for the, the migrants, the Iberian migrants in the Dutch Republic who signed on for this plan. And they, there was actually a, an application process um, at certain points in history where you could write a, a brief letter explaining your situation and why you were so desperate and how many ch hungry children you were you were failing to feed and you would be selected as a colonizer. And so then they they came there. Were there um, economic incentives for them to come? Well, depending on the program, and in the 1740s, the Dutch Republic launched a really interesting program that, that probably did not work very well, if at all, but it offered them settlement and land to work. So the, these migrants were pictured as farmers. They were going to be farmers, and some of them actually did have farming background. Those of Portugal, for example, some of them had been wine growers, in uh, vin vineyard workers in, in Portugal. I, I even came across one application of a miner who had worked in mines in Brazil. For, he had been born in Portugal and then had settled in, in Brazil for a time, which had a Jewish settlement for a few decades before Suriname did. And the incentives were, were the, the leaders, the Jewish leaders said, we're gonna give you some tools, we're gonna give you some money. We're going to give you enslaved people to work your lands and you can be tax-free for a few years and you have to bring in more settlements, more settlers, that is. And, and then um, the entire region, the inland region, the leaders hoped would be populated by Jews. This inland region centered around a Jewish village called Yodin Savannah, which was formally established in 1780, uh, excuse me, 1685. Yodin Savannah is a Dutch word meaning the Savannah of the Jews. And a Savannah is a, it's a topographical term. It simply means a treeless plain, P-L-I-N. The, it was um, an area that was very good for establishing a village, but not very good for establishing agriculture because the soil was very, very sandy. But there, the Jewish community in the 1680s established a synagogue two cemeteries, one in Yon Savannah, one about two miles away, both of which we documented in the late, let's see, when was this already? Late 1990s, early 2000s, and schools. And surrounding Yon Savannah, the village of Yon Savannah, were plantations owned by Jews. They typically bore Portuguese and Spanish names, for example, Boa Esperanza, a Portuguese term meaning the good hope, or Hebrew terms derived from the Bible, like Machanaim, which of course is a place name, 
an encampment place in the Hebrew Bible. And these plantations were owned by Jewish men, although some were also owned by Jewish women. And in fact, several of the owners were Eurafrican Jews. In other words, Jews of dual African and European ancestry who were bona fide Jews. Many of them were actually not converts to Judaism. By this time in the late 18th century, they were actually born Jewish. One of them, a very interesting woman by the name of Rosa Judea, meaning wow. Jewish Rose. Yeah. Rose Jewish. That's a great name. Um, okay, so let's go back to the title of the book for a minute. Um, Jewish Autonomy in a Slave Society. I'm curious how you came up with the title. It's, a, it's almost a paradox there. Um, tell us a little bit about that. And that, that is a really good word that you use, paradox. When you study slavery, it is ridden with paradox. And slavery, of course, is a prehistoric human institution. It is found in every sedentary society known to us as historians and archaeologists as well. And even nomadic societies, um, many or most of them or all of them even had the institution of slavery. So Suriname in, in many ways is very typical of diachronic slavery, of, of the slavery that we know through time, that, that, that scholars have studied through time. And it, as I mentioned before, it, it is written with contradiction. Uh, maybe I can talk about that at another moment, but but I, I just want to stay on point because you asked me about the title. Mm -hmm. So the situation in Suriname is that a group of people's success depended on the subjugation of another group of people. And that is actually an attribute of slavery. That's how slavery institution works. Work, um, slavery institutions work exactly in that manner. One sub subjugation causes the flourishing of another group. And I, I wanted to highlight that, that seeming that seeming contradiction, that paradox. And I also wanted to get away from identities. So when I came of age, when I went to college, the, the important way of understanding human beings was through the lens of identity, culture, language, race, ethnicity, as it was called then and still is. And therefore, the first, the first instantiation of the book, I thought, oh, maybe I'll call it Jewish identity in a slave society. And I said, no, no, I really, I want to get away from this, because of course, the Jews had their own distinctive culture. Of course, you have to be fluent in Hebrew, Aramaic, Portuguese, Spanish to understand these Jewish people and read their sources. And yes, it's distinctive, but that's really not the heart of the story. The heart of the story is something political that is going on. And that is autonomy. That is that Jews as a group, their leaders aggressively campaigned for privileges with the English and then later with the Dutch authorities. And among those privileges was the privilege of owning their own village, which became known as Yodin Savannah, a village where only Jews lived ostensibly. Although of course the majority population was of enslaved right. African origin <laughs> and non-Jewish background. And also to have their own tribunal. That's another very important, a central part of Jewish autonomy is the privilege of living by your own rules. That's what autonomy actually means. It means self-rule, and which meant that they could not only govern themselves, but according to Jewish law, both religious and secular, but also compel 
their Jewish constituents to follow Jewish law. This is written into the bylaws of the privileges. The governor actually said, if there's anybody in the Jewish community who violates Jewish law, we will come in and we'll expel them. We'll help you out. We'll help you punish and expel them either from Yodin Savannah, the village, or completely from, from the colony. And this privilege, and there were many more, uh, the privilege of having your own school, the privilege of maintaining your records in your native language, which was for the most part Portuguese and to, and secondarily Hebrew and, and Spanish. There were many other privileges, but this was truly unparalleled. There was no white group in the colony that enjoyed these privileges. There were a couple of messianic white Christian groups, uh, the Labadists, notably, they had autonomous privileges and they had a rural settlement, but it very soon disintegrated and the people were killed or died and it fell apart and they were never heard from again. So you really have to look outside of the white population to find anything remotely parallel to the autonomy that Surinamese Jews enjoyed. So I, I looked at the example of indigenous people and also Maroons. Maroons are people of African ancestry who manumitted themselves by running away from the plantation to the surrounding rainforest. And they founded their own civilizations in the surrounding rainforest. They still exist today. There are six tribes of Maroons today in Suriname. Their, their traditional livelihood lifestyle is greatly endangered, but they are, they are still there. And they have an amazing oral tradition, also wood carving tradition that Richard Price, among others, have closely looked at, the anthropologist Richard Price. And if, if you look at these indigenous communities and the Maroon communities of Suriname, they have something called, something akin to autonomy as well. They are allowed to live by their own laws. The colonial government in Paramaribo, the capital city, recognized these laws. And the colonial government, as well as the metropolitan government, they negotiate with these Indian leaders, captains, and with these Maroon leaders. And in the case of the Maroons, the government, the colonial government even pays tribute to the Maroons by once yearly bringing them tools and luxury items in exchange for the promise of Maroons to help hunt down runaway slaves and protect the borders of the colony. So that is, that is autonomy, and, and I think it's very significant that, there, that the, the closest group, structurally speaking, to the Jews are actually not whites at all. They are indigenous people and maroon people. Yeah, and I, and I love the way that you played with that, and thank you for explaining that. So you gave us a lot of information here. Let's talk a little bit about the methodology for a moment. I know that uh, one of the synagogues, at least, from Suriname, Suriname was brought to the Israel Museum. And so I'm assuming there isn't much of a Jewish life left there in Suriname, and the man I met also had left. Um, and I know that there is a decent community in um, Amsterdam from there. So where did, I know you started with the graves, you mentioned that. Where else did you get your information from and what methods did you use? This is a very important question because anything you write is a hundred percent is ninety percent going to be based on your sources. And I made a decision early on that I did not want to speculate. And I also made a decision early on that no matter how difficult it was, I was going to get to those archives that really 
just against all odds have been preserved. These are diachronic sources, sources that were recorded on a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly basis by the colonial government and by the Jewish community itself, beginning in the 1650s. And they were created both in the Dutch Republic and in Suriname and made their way across the Atlantic from Suriname to the Dutch Republic and back and back and forth. And after all of those ship voyages and the saltwater damage and the fires and what have you, they, uh, the bulk of them survived. And I made a decision early on that I was gonna look through these. So in order to do that, I had to retool myself. I learned how to read early modern Dutch. I learned, I taught myself Portuguese, which I cannot speak, but I can read fluently. And I decided that I was going to read every single page and I wasn't going to be impressionistic about it. So I just sat down starting in, really starting in the late 1990s. And this was, mind you, before everything had been digitized. Now it's so much easier. Oh, the 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 Hague, the National Archive in the Hague, they have done an amazing job digitizing, so professional, digitizing practically the whole run of, of the Surinamese records. And before that, you just had to pray that the archivist would bring you the folder because uh, progressively through the 2000s, there would be a little red uh, red sticker saying off limits, too fragile for you to see. Oh, wow. So I had to skip, but, but gradually everything became digitized. But even before it became digitized, I had amassed so, so many, so many photographs and so many notes that I had taken that I felt conf confident that I could say something authoritative about, for example, wills. I went through all of the wills of the 18th and early 19th century, looking for, for testators of your African Jewish descent. And I, I think I, I found most of them. And so I, I could say something about your African Jews as a group. So that was a that was probably my my most important source were were these records that are now housed in the National Archives of The Hague in the Netherlands. I also looked at archives all over the Caribbean and parts of the Americas. And of course, the material culture is extremely important. Rachel Franco, my co-author and I, documented four cemeteries, actually five, including an Afro-Creole cemetery of Yolden Savannah. And, and that was a very important source, but it, it, it didn't really drive my narrative. And actually one of the reasons I turned to paper sources is because I was very frustrated by trying to base any kind of narrative on cemetery records or, or even cemetery remnants. You, you, re you really, to get the big picture and, and to get, I think, what is the essence of the society, you need narrative sources and you need them to be diachronic. Diachronic is a word meaning through time, across time. And that, that hard work just needs to be done. You have to sit down and look at every single page. Wow, it's amazing the way you were able to make it. And I've told you this before, is it, it's actually a very readable book. It's something that I just wanted to keep reading and that doesn't always happen with academic books. So I have to do put that out there as well. So you had mentioned that you wanted to expand a little bit about the Eurafrican community. Of course. So one of my goals in the book was to find out when, when the first Eurafrican community emerged. And in fact, when the first Eurafrican individuals were born. 
And for this, I, I did find records from the 1660s. The earliest record I did find was the 1660s. And it was a circumcision record. And in this circumcision record, you see references to, to a baby born by the name of David Judeo, or, or Judio, depending on your pronunciation, Portuguese or Spanish. And, and it's very curious because a Jew would not be named Jew. It's always that they're Jewish. Why would you name them Jewish? And so what I found out through many, many sources and putting two and two together is that Judio or, or Judeo, this was a kind of like a byname for a convert, for a person of African ancestry who had been admitted to formally to the Jewish religion. And he was circumcised, David Judeo or Judeo. He was circumcised in the 1660s. There were many other Judeos after him. Another last name that was very typically your African Jewish is Pelegrino, which means pilgrim in Portuguese or, or Pelegrino or Peregrino, depending on it. the name in Spanish and Portuguese is spelled multiple ways and pronounced multiple ways. And the, the last name Peregrino is actually was used as a convert name in the Iberian Peninsula for old Christians, people of undiluted Christian ancestry, who converted to Judaism. They were also, they also assumed the last name Peregrino. Peregrino means pilgrim. And so in a way, it was like a spiritual pilgrimage journey that they undertook in order to convert to Judaism. But in a slave colony, Peregrino had the additional meaning, I think, or maybe even the exclusive meaning of being a, a convert of, of non-Jewish African descent, a convert to Judaism. And it was a marker of difference. And the Jews who bore this last name, they were completely cognizant of the meaning of their last name. And when they petitioned the Jewish leaders of Suriname for charity, they would make puns on their last name because Peregrino can mean not only pilgrim, but it can also mean foreigner or stranger. And they would quote from the Bible and they would say, have, have mercy on me, I'm in need of, of charitable assistance. And don't forget the admonition from the Hebrew Bible that says, do not turn away the peregrino, do not turn away the foreigner. So the, these are individual anecdotes, but as a group, you can say that probably the majority of Jews by the early 19th century in Suriname had some degree of African ancestry, however attenuated. And you can see this because the presence of your African Jews started to affect the legislation of the Jewish community. Already in the 1730s, you start to see laws in the Ashkenazi community of Suriname that, that designated a second-class status to, to Jews of African ancestry who were labeled as congregants. In Portuguese, they were, they were labeled as congregants. The Ashkenazim, now I'm actually forgetting the term, but the Ashkenazim had another way to designate them. They were clearly second-class members of the community. They were bona fide Jews, but they had to, to sit in the margins of the synagogue. Or if they were female, they had to sit in the back of the balcony. Typically, they could only marry former congregants, former uh, people of um, slave origins and African origin. And those two factors, of course, overlapped. If you were of slave origins, you were typically of African origin. and. Also, a, a white person who was publicly known as white and undiluted and of undiluted white ancestry in the in public knowledge or in public reputation 
if they married a congregant, if they married a second-class Jew, they would lose their first-class status and they would become congregant themselves. And there were these intricate laws about how you could get rid of your congregant status in your family. And basically there was a whitening clause whereby if, if, if let's say you were a yachid, a first-class member of reputed white ancestry, if you married a congregant, then you lost your first-class status. But if your children and grandchildren married white Jews, married Yechidim, you could recoup that white status, that Yechid status. And I, th I think the words that were used are also really important because it, even though, of course, Jews were slaveholders, just like the white Christians, their practices showed a very important resistance to racialized thinking. So they, of course, they use the term, the terms mulatush, negrush, uh, mulatto, negro. Mm -hmm. But but in their legislation, they tended to avoid those terms. And congregant does, does not have any racial overtone. I, it, an overtone, yes, but not, not a denomination. It does not denominate anything racial. It just means a congregant. Yahid has no racial denomination. It simply means an individual or a member in Hebrew, yahid, yahidim. And, and the if you look at the marriage contracts as well, you can see this. So I found, um, not my discovery, of course, the wonderful researchers before me already saw these in the early 20th century, but there is a collection of Kitubot, Jewish marriage contracts from Suriname, spanning the entire 18th century. And there are four couples in this co collection who were your African Jews. The Kitubot are formulated in the traditional Hebrew Aramaic, and they have the signatures typically in Hebrew letters, but now and then you see the signatures in Latin letters. And you see that all of these four couples, they were of slave origins, but the Ketubot never used the word avadim. They never used the word slave. Instead, they used the word meshukharim, which means manumitted, literally released from ownership. So the status of these brides and bridegroom were, yes, they were born slaves, but the Ketubah doesn't say that. It just says they were released from slaver meshukharim. They were manumitted and they, needless to say, they had huge opulent dowries. They owned slaves, they owned jewels, they owned agricultural tools, which of course speaks to, to the, the upward mobility, both social and economic, that many Euro African Jews enjoyed. And I, I argue in my book that this happened because many Jewish masters of reputed white status could not bear children because in Suriname, first cousins tended to marry first cousins. And that could, and I think did lead to barren, barrenness, the inability to have children. And in several wills, you see the testator saying, I'm married, I'm legally married to my first cousin, Ribka, and she has the same name as my mother, we're first cousins. And we were not, uh, we were not blessed with children. And then the next paragraph will say, I hereby give all of my property to my seven slave children that I had with my slave woman. And it, it's quite obvious, even though, you know, because, because uh, in polite society, you were not supposed to usually mention that these were your birth children, but it is quite obvious that these were their birth children. And they, so I argue in my book that the, the birth of these children 
not only had had an important role in increasing the, the numbers of the Jewish community, but also in passing down wealth, because otherwise these, these testators would not have anyone to give their wealth to. So you mentioned here now, and I was reading in the book, and actually the one critique I did, I did see about the book um, was that you focus on the Sephardi story much more than the Ashkenazi story. And obviously I was gonna ask that anyway, but it was interesting when I saw the book review about it as well. Um, can you explain why? Absolutely, this is a really important critique and it goes back to sources. Unfortunately, the, the archive of the Ashkenazi Jews was not preserved. There is a small co collection of Ashkenazi minutes, communal minutes. When I was in Suriname, I saw them. I was not allowed to sit down and look at them. I did study Yiddish, by the way, so I, I and and Dutch, of course, they were written in a combination of Yiddish and Dutch, but I I was not allowed to sit down and look at them or or digitize them. They are they are, as I understand it, in the possession of one of the leaders of the community, but they have not been, as far as I know, digitized, and as far as I know, they're they are not even archived in in any kind of accessible or safe way. And I hope I'm wrong about this, of course. And the, therefore, the only way you can write a narrative history of, of these Ashkenazi Jews, there are a couple of ways. One is we do have fragments of their communal minutes. They're written in Dutch and they are archived actually in the, in Cincinnati of all places, Isaac Emmanuel, Emmanuel, um, uh, sorry, I'm going to backtrack a little bit. In the 1950s, the head of the American Jewish Archives, Jacob Marcus, he took a tour of the Caribbean and it was a, he called it an expedition whereby he was going to gather all of the surviving documents of Caribbean Jewry from their colonial beginnings to through, I think he, he stipulated the 18th century. And he was able to find these fragments of Ashkenazi communal minutes. So I was able to look at those and that was really helpful Could you, because you could see the Ashkenazi community of Suriname developing much in parallel to the Portuguese Jewish community, you know, with the same bylaws referring to your African Jews and delineating their second class status. But it was very clear from, from these, even from these records that the Ashkenazim did not have a direct, such a direct relationship with the colonial and metropolitan government whereby they were negotiating for privileges. To my knowledge, there is no book of Ashkenazi Jewish privileges that gives them autonomy. Ashkenazi Jews did not have Jewish autonomy in Suriname. Portuguese Jews did. And Ashkenazi Jews, sometimes in my book, I call it, they rode on the jurisdictional coattails of the Portuguese Jews. In other words, they benefited from Portuguese Jewish autonomy and, and the laws and the negotiations with the colonial government, but they themselves did not directly negotiate. Ashkenazim themselves did not directly negotiate with the colonial government. I also want to say that, particularly for those readers, those listeners out there who know Yiddish and can read it, and, and understand the paleography of Yiddish, there are amazing documents out there of, of traders, merchants, who are stationed on both sides of the Atlantic, Suriname and the Dutch Republic. And we do have their, we do have their, their mercantile records. I didn't get to see them, that it, it just was beyond the scope of, of my research, but 
but there definitely remains a book out there to be written mm -hmm. more than one, which changes the lens of focus. And you could definitely tell this story from, from the perspective of the Ashkenazim, but the bulk of the sources are still going to come from the Portuguese Jews. So we're, although I have a bunch more questions, I'm gonna try and focus us so that we just have two more, if that's okay. I just, I need you, because I was so excited reading all the Purim things in the book, I want you to at least share with our listeners a little bit about what, what made Purim so unique in Suriname. So Purim is the annual Jewish holiday that commemorates the Jews of ancient Persia who were slated for a genocidal decree and miraculously, and also through the intervention of the, of, um, of uh, Esther and Mordechai, they were able to avert a decree of genocide against them. In the diaspora, typically Purim is celebrated for a day, two days, but in Suriname as well as in Curaçao, the Dutch colony of Curaçao in the insular Caribbean, Purim was celebrated for 10 days, sometimes even two weeks. It was a big to-do. There was dancing and singing in the streets, alcohol imbibing in the streets. There were even fireworks in Curaçao in the early 19th century. And not only that, but it was not exclusively a Jewish holiday. The, the general population eagerly participated, especially enslaved people. And in the local newspaper of Suriname, for example, you see advertisements in, in the newspaper already, I think in, was it December, advertising for Purim masks. And this was an advertisement in a general colonial newspaper, which you know implies that not only Jews are interested in buying these masks and anticipating the holiday, but non-Jews as well, white Christians, uh, definitely people of African descent and definitely enslaved and free people of African descent. And as I studied this, I, I found so many references to Purim. There were enslaved people, men who, who were called Purim. That was their official uh, slave name, Purim. There, uh, there were um, there were attempts of the Jewish government and the colonial government to suppress Purim. It had gotten out of hand. Everybody was celebrating it, and it, it was making the city shut down. And it was causing a lot of um, uh, uh, feared violence. They were, uh, of course, the, in a slave colony. The 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 people in power were. And, and also many subjugated people were quite worried about slave revolts and general violence in the colony. So there were many decrees trying to put a stop to, to Purim over the years. And when I looked at Purim, I realized I couldn't tell this as a Jewish story exclusively, even though on the face of it, it was. And what I realized is that in a slave society, when the vast majority of the people are both, of, both enslaved and of African descent, you have to see that this holiday was most likely a Afro-Creole form of carnival. And Purim, of course, coincides with the Catholic and the Protestant carnival. It happens between March and, and, and April and sometimes June. And it coincides with, with the Christian calendar. And there are also many carvinalesque traditions mm -hmm. from West Africa involving, for example, masquerade. And so I argue that Purim became 
the epitome of a Creole society, that is the blending of various cultures, and also something that was, was very disruptive and challenging to the local authority. And that, that was my argument about Purim pandemonium. And I love that. I didn't. Um, okay. On the New Books Network, we always like to hear what you're working on next. So can you tell us what you're working on now? Yeah, great question. I love to talk about my next book. So I my next book is about Ottoman immigrants who were principally Jewish, but I'm closely looking actually at the, the Christians and the Muslims who were typically Armenians and, and Syrians and some Greeks as well. And they migrated westward. My central focus point right now is England. And they brought with them, many or most of them were involved in the carpet trade. And in England, they imported the the carpet trade. They also helped change immigration laws of naturalization by negotiating with the British government and allowing Ottoman aliens, so enemy aliens, to become British through all of these loopholes that in consort with the government they invented. The, the book is very different from my previous books. First of all, it required me to retool once again. So I studied Arabic. I studied three years of Arabic, and I, I will continue to do that. I also want to learn Ottoman, which is also known as, as a, you know, Ottoman Turkish. Mm-hmm. And, and also, I'm retooling myself in our history, and I'm currently auditing art history courses with Professor Walter Denny, who is here at my university, because I realized that I don't know... I, I don't know how to see, and I know that sounds strange because I read all the time <laughs> in many languages and many, many media, but I, I realize from an art history point of view, I don't know how to see. So in part with Professor Denium, I'm learning how to see so I can understand material culture. I love that. I love how you can continuously learn, continuously grow, and I really look forward to speaking some more because... Every, every time I hear you and every time I read something by you, I just feel so much more enriched. So thank you so much. Uh, just to remind everybody, we were talking to uh, Professor Aviva Ben-Ur and her book, uh, Jewish Autonomy in a Slave Society, Suriname in the Atlantic World, 1651 to 1825, put out by the University of Pennsylvania Press in 2020. And um, we, again, we hope to hear you. And we hope to have you all back with us. And for those listening who want some personal accounts about the Jewish mosaic and the greater Jewish experience, I also encourage you to listen to the ASF Institute of Jewish Experiences podcast, Reclaiming Identity, which is on Apple, Spotify, Google, and on our website. So thank you again. Have a Shana Tova. And, uh, thank you so much, Tova. It was a pleasure. It was all mine. Have a great day. <laughs>